Deja Vu and WMD. Today, Thursday, April 25th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. U.S. intelligence agencies say Syria may have used the nerve gas sarin as a weapon. The White House says it needs more proof. This former inspector says verification will be key. If the international community has inspectors who go in that they trust are independent, and they take samples, and those samples are analyzed in independent labs, and they come back with a confirmed presence of sarin, then there's a case. Also today, more questions about how the government tracks terrorism suspects. Plus, one novelist's view of the identity crisis facing many immigrants. When you try to reject the half of yourself that has become American or British or European, there's a degree of self-violence that goes on. It's rejecting yourself. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If Syria uses chemical weapons, that would constitute a red line for the U.S. President Obama said so himself last year. Well, today, more reports strongly suggesting that Syria has used chemical weapons. The White House says U.S. intelligence has concluded with some degree of varying confidence that the government of Bashar al-Assad has used sarin gas as a weapon in Syria's civil war. But the White House added that credible and corroborated facts were needed before President Obama will act. Charles Delfer is a former U.N. weapons inspector. Um, Mr. Delfer, earlier this week, an Israeli general said that Syria had used chemical weapons. He cited no strong evidence. Today, it's the White House's defense secretary suggesting the use of sarin gas. What do you make of the claims? I think we need to get more facts first, more facts which are substantiated by uh, a number of parties. It's difficult to coordinate international action if not everyone agrees with clarity that, in fact, that has happened, that sarin gas has been used. Typically, what would happen in a circumstance like this, UN inspectors would go in, they would take samples, and those samples would be sent to a range of different laboratories. They would be analyzed, and if there was consensus among them, then there would be an indisputable case that could be brought before the international community. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty, as is evidenced in the, in the rather wishy-washy statement from the White House. Right. Well, the White House said it still needed credible and corroborated facts. Uh, as you say, that's what's needed. What would constitute those credible and corroborated facts at this point, as opposed to an intelligence assessment from the defense secretary? Well, there has to be a, like a chain of evidence. If the international community has inspectors who go in that they trust are independent, they're not swayed by Israel, the United States, the Russians, the Syrians, the Iranians, but they're internationally blessed in a sense, and they go in and they take samples, and those samples are analyzed in independent labs, and they come back with a confirmed presence of sarin, then there's a case. I have to say, though, that whatever use may have been made of sarin in this case, it had to be very limited. And that's going to be a little bit confusing for the international community, because as Saddam always did, he he would do his violations in small slices so that there wasn't a big statement that the international community would react to. Remind us what sarin gas is and what it does. It's a nerve agent. It causes a painful death, and it is probably most important for either large concentrations of military forces or for causing terror. The Iraqi experience in the war with Iran during the 1980s, they used a lot of sarin agent, which was effective against massed troops. 
In the case of Syria, they would be applying it, if you can understand a purpose at all, as a terror weapon to create terror among the, the civilian population. It's not useful in the circumstances on the ground militarily in Syria today. So if for the sake of argument, the White House determines that the Syrian government has used sarin, what are President Obama's options in getting more involved in Syria? He said the chemical weapons would be a red line. It's a red line not only for the United States, but I think if it is clear, that'll be a unifying factor for the international community. Right now, there's a lot of daylight between the United States, between Moscow, between the French, between you know, all these countries. But if, in fact, the Syrian government has used sarin gas, that would tend to solidify the opposition against him, which is why it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. Charles Delfer, former U.N. weapons inspector, thanks for your time. Thank you. The Obama administration is also under pressure today to explain its handling of warnings from Russia about one of the alleged Boston Marathon bombers. It's now emerged that Tamerlan Tsarnaev's name had been listed in not one but two U.S. terrorism databases. The CIA apparently nominated Tsarnaev to one list after getting a tip from Russian intelligence. That would have been the second Russian tip after an earlier one was sent to the FBI. That's leading some in Congress to ask if more could have been done to monitor Tamerlan Tsarnaev before the marathon bombings last week. I asked former counterterrorism official Julia Kayyem to help us sort out what we know so far. Okay, so the two databases that we know he he was on was one called TIDE, which is Terrorist Identities Data Mart Environment List. It could have been better named. And that's sort of our, that's the government's sort of big list. It has probably at last public disclosure, it had close to half a million names. That's a list that's sort of our broad brush list. It sort of is someone hanging out with someone that we're nervous about. It's going to be over broad. So Tamerlan was on that list. He was also on, uh, according to some reports, a terrorist screening database. That, too, is also a relatively large list and quite broad. Um, Each of these are managed by different agencies that are inputting tags and information. So for audiences, there's a lot of databases. These two are the big ones. There are more selective ones, which Tamerlan never appeared on. Those are the selectee list, the no-fly list, and then something called the disposition matrix, which is actually one related to the authorization to use force. So lots of lists, and he was on the two big ones right now is what we can confirm. It it all seems so confusing. I mean, why is it that way? Well, part of it is just legacy from pre-9-11 days. So it's less confusing when you actually work in it or understand it because, you know, you have your own agency like the Department of Homeland Security or Coast Guard or TSA who are just essentially working within their own intel regime and just putting information into these big master lists. But that's not to say it's simple. It is very, very complicated. One of the reasons why it's complicated is because different rules apply to different people on intelligence gathering, both here and abroad. Um, To explain it does not mean to forgive it. It is just as this is unfolding in real time to be able to sort of understand how could this happen. is important. Do, do you think the public is going to hear this interview and say, gosh, uh, all those interagency problems that the 9-11 Commission cited uh, didn't get solved? Uh, yeah. I mean, is that a fair critique? I think, I, think it, I, mean, I think an overall assessment is, yes, there is still stovepiping. I was within it. Um, part of the stovepiping is uh, natural and has and no... And explain con- what you mean by stovepiping. I'm sorry. So, yes, I was in government. There's clearly stovepiping or what we call stovepiping, which is uh, agencies 
all across the United States holding on to information that they collect. So there is still stovepiping. I will tell you, I am not convinced that was the problem in this case. I am not. The stovepiping, stovepiping generally means you have good information that you keep from others. Mm -hmm. I think the issue, at least as I can tell right now, was that there wasn't good information. Now that's a, that that's also a problem, right? How, you know, maybe we should double up interviews. Maybe the FBI should go through two or three questionings of all of these people on the list. But that to me is a different issue than the historical stovepiping. So that's just how I'm trying to m- make clear the pieces that are moving um, to a public that hasn't lived in this world. But that's at least my understanding of it right now. Juliet Kayem, thanks. Always Thank good to speak you. with you. Thank you. Julia Kayem is a former counterterrorism official. She now teaches at Harvard and is a columnist for the Boston Globe. The two alleged Boston bombers, the Sarnayev brothers, moved to the U.S. from Russia over a decade ago. Each seemed to assimilate to life in America to some degree. But assimilation is a long process, and it involves an individual's ever-changing notion of identity. Those notions are explored in a new film called The Reluctant Fundamentalist. It's by director Mira Nair and based on a novel by Mohsen Hamid. The main character, Changez Khan, leaves Pakistan to study at Princeton. He gets a high-powered job in Manhattan, even dates a socialite. Then two planes hit the Twin Towers and everything changes. Changez finds himself in the middle of an identity crisis and upon returning to teach at a university in Pakistan, a suspect in a terrorist plot. In this scene, Changez, played by actor Riz Ahmed, meets with a journalist, played by Leo Schreiber, in a tea house in Pakistan to share his side of the story. Am I part of the, the new militant academia? I don't know. Are you? You know, the answer to that question may challenge some of your preconceived notions. Changez, I'm a journalist. Generally, we try to avoid preconceived notions. But of course. And those preconceived notions of identity are also what author Mohsen Hamid set out to challenge. For somebody who is a migrant in a new place, when you try to reject the half of yourself that has become, let's say, American or British or European, there's a degree of self-violence that goes on. To say, look, you know, I start to speak like an American, I talk like an American, I sometimes think like an American. I don't want to be that. It's rejecting yourself. And that can be a very violent process. It's violent to the psyche, and it can be violent to the outside world, too. I mean, that rejection of one half of that uh, duality in uh, one's identity has been discussed a lot in the past 10 days. Well, I tend to think that these battles we're seeing around the world is a war on hybridity. We have people in places like Pakistan who are saying we don't like the increasing Americanization of our youth, of our culture. I and mean, people in Europe and America are saying, you know, we don't like this immigrant population coming from abroad and, and mixing us. And these people pick fights with each other, and the rest of us then get dragged into a battle against what I think is the natural state of things, which is increasing mixing. I mean, Mohsen, you yourself, you were born in Lahore, Pakistan, came to the U.S. for college and even went to Princeton, just like Chengiz, the the protagonist of the story. Your book is a work of fiction, but I'm wondering how you've experienced that tension. When I was three years old, I came from Pakistan to America. My father did his Ph.D. here. And the family stayed until I was nine. I spoke Urdu then, but not English at three. And at nine, I went back to Pakistan speaking English and having forgotten my Urdu. At 18, I came back to America for college and law school. And I worked till I was about 30 years old and Britain for a few years and now Pakistan again. And I've been moving between these worlds. And when I was younger, I felt like I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be, you know, a young Californian kid when I was in California. And then a Lahori teenager when I lived in Lahore, Pakistan. 
And only as I got older did I realize that that was just not natural to myself. And I ought to allow myself just to be a mixed up kind of mongrel. In The Russian Fundamentalist is a character who wants to reject that. I remember feeling these impulses of, of trying to be just American or just Pakistani and the tension of that. And part of my process, I think, of maybe outgrowing that was writing a character who couldn't outgrow it. Is feeling like a mongrel okay with some emigres and just not acceptable by others? I think what we have to keep in mind is the basic state of being a human being is to be mongrelized. The way a mammal comes into existence is two different mammals, male and female, get together, commingle the genetic code, and create this mixed-up thing that we call the child. Yet we've imposed upon ourselves these religious, national, ethnic, racial categories that deny our innate hybridity. And for me, the bigger question is, how do we allow hybridity to become natural and a good thing again? And so how do we allow hybridity to become normal? For me, the first thing is to recognize that it's in ourselves. You know, if you think about what happened in Boston, we can think about these two young men. I mean, I, I don't know them. I don't know the details. But, you know, so much of it seems schizophrenic, you know, fitting in, not fitting in, having double life confusion. And that seems so strange. But if we look more closely at ourselves, I think what we recognize is so many of us are conflicted and schizophrenic too. You know, the man who has an affair but loves his wife and children feels that way. The man who does a job that he hates but enjoys spending the money feels that way. The woman who is in a marriage with children but longs to be by herself traveling the world feels that way. It's a natural thing for us to be in tension with ourselves. And so what we have to look for is to understand that about ourselves and to recognize for some people that tension becomes unmanageable. How do you think the American audiences are going to respond to the film adaptation of The Reluctant Fundamentalist uh, when it opens tomorrow, especially after Boston? I don't believe there is such a thing as an American audience. There are 300 million different people in America, Muslims, Pakistanis, Chechens, Britons, Germans. We're all incredibly diverse, and we don't react in the same way to stuff. So for me, there won't be an American reaction. There will be lots of individual reactions. And I hope that some of those individual reactions will find the film stimulating and interesting. Mohsen Hamid, the author of The Reluctant Fundamentalist, Mira Nair's film adaptation of his book opens in New York and Los Angeles tomorrow. Mohsen, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Still ahead, we get to know a courageous lawyer from Zimbabwe a little better on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today's GeoQuiz is a walk in the park, a park in Berlin to be specific. It surrounds the city's Bellevue Palace, which is the official residence of the German president near the banks of the Spree River. Its two square miles were largely deforested during the Second World War. But today the park is again a woodsy urban retreat where Berliners like to stroll. Reporter Alexa Dvorzen says that at night this time of year, it's the perfect place to hear the songs of nightingales, which have just arrived back in the city. We asked her to send us an audio postcard, and it just arrived today. We'll take a listen and name that park in a few minutes.
Russian President Vladimir Putin set a record today. He was on live national television answering the public's questions for four hours and 47 minutes. That was longer than any of Putin's 10 previous live TV call-in shows. And the Russian public apparently loved it. According to the moderator, more than two and a half million questions came in for the president by phone, text or email. Miriam Elder, the Guardian's Moscow correspondent, was monitoring the Q&A. She was also live tweeting during the event for what she called sanity maintenance. Miriam, uh, you were at the press center, which was a, a cafe near the Kremlin. Putin beat a personal best of four hours and 33 minutes. How did this Q&A stand out from the ones of past years? Uh, It seemed a lot more orchestrated than in times past. And I don't think we should make too much of this record because it's kind of a special thing that they do every single year. Every year he beats his previous record by just a couple of minutes. This year it's by 15 minutes. It's specially done. But this year um, you had like the usual sort of questions you would expect about the economy and social problems. There was one part where you could see uh, the moderator trying to get the audience to start clapping you wouldn't have seen that in previous years. Was there anything in the content and the, the issues he dealt with that made it seem more orchestrated? I would say that there were f- fewer questions that even bordered on being tough. There was really only one question that was challenging that was given by the editor-in-chief of the uh, main liberal radio station here asking about the crackdown that the Kremlin has unleashed. He only seemed kind of upset when he was repeatedly asked about the recent death of uh, Boris Berezovsky. Yeah, tell Uh, us about that, because that was a a tense moment. Uh, Boris Berezovsky, uh, the powerful Russian oligarch who helped Putin rise to power, then he went into exile and then died under strange circumstances a month ago. Right, and there have been all these rumors uh, that Berezovsky had sent Putin a letter asking for forgiveness and asking for him to be able to return to Russia. He just lost a a big court case in London and seemingly lost a a lot of his money. So these rumors were swirling around. Putin was asked to comment and he confirmed that he did in fact receive two letters from Berezovsky, one in February and then one just recently uh, after he'd already died. And he just kind of seemed to get uh, increasingly annoyed as the moderator kept putting more and more questions to him. Now, the bombings in Boston came up during uh, the Q&A. What did Putin have to say about that? He started with some criticism of the West and the Western press in particular. He said, for all these years, uh, we haven't been taking Russia's terrorism problem seriously. We call the people who are waging this battle in the Caucasus rebels rather than terrorists. Hmm. And that we've been giving them informational support, political support, financial support. But then in the end, he turned around and said, well, this attack just proves that we have to cooperate closely. We have to work closely together, that international terrorism is something that everybody is a victim of. So Boston and uh, Boris Berezovsky came up, but those were not the most popular topics. What topic came up the most? Um, More than anything, it was very local problems, things like um, rising communal apartment charges. That was discussed a whole bunch. Right. And while Putin was talking about Russia's road fund, you tweeted, people would rather hear, I will personally fill the potholes bare chested. (laughs) (laughs) Do people do people really watch this call in show or they just want to see if they can get their questions on air? You know, I'm always attached to the television, so I don't even know how many people properly watch it. You don't know if you can really believe the figures. But yeah, the road question was particularly funny just because the roads here are so notoriously terrible. There's a famous Russian saying that says, you know, Russia has two uh, eternal problems, idiots and roads. Putin alluded to that. (laughs) So you live tweeted, as I indicated earlier, for sanity maintenance, as he said. Why does this test your sanity? 
You know, when you're sitting there and somebody asks a question about the potential bankruptcy of their meat factory, and it allows Putin to go very in-depth into these statistics about um, chicken and pork imports, I know that this is not going to make it into my article, <laughs> and yet I have to listen to every single word. So it just kind of helps to take it with a little bit of humor. Miriam Elder, The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Relive the sometimes comical ups and downs of Russian President Vladimir Putin's televised Q&A session today. We've posted highlights of Miriam Elder's tweet-a-thon during the call-in show. They are epic and totally worth the read. And they're at theworld.org. Back to our geo-quiz now. We're looking for the name of a two-square-mile park in Berlin. That's a favorite spot for strollers. This time of year, it's also a favorite spot for nightingales. Nightingales spend about six weeks every spring in north-central Europe after flying from their wintering grounds in Africa. They're modest-looking little birds, but their songs are something to behold. Nightingales have among the largest repertoires of any bird, with up to 300 different songs. As their name implies, they sing at night, and reporter Alexa Dvorzin happened to have a recorder handy at 3 in the morning recently when she heard they'd arrived. She sent us this audio postcard. Listen closely for the answer to the geo-quiz. This is the first nightingale I've heard this year. Best sound I've heard all week. He's just gotten here from West Africa. Just to mate. So these are the males. Who are trying to impress the females with their fancy repertoire. And whoever has the most impressive song gets the girl. I'm standing under the Big Dipper near some oak trees just 50 meters or so from the presidential palace. I'm in a section of Berlin called the Tiergarten. This is one of the favorite places that nightingales stay for the six weeks or so that they're here. Once they've sort of staked their territory, you can come back to the same tree and hear the same one every night. One minute he's channeling Bach or Vivaldi. And the next minute he's doing some riff from John Coltrane, it seems. And this is just the opening act. After this, they'll fly on towards Scandinavia and spend the warmer summer months before they head back south to West Africa for the winter. So this guy's definitely getting his chops up for the mating season. For the world, this is Alexa Dvorsen in Berlin. And the answer to the quiz, Berlin's Tiergarten. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the debate in Germany over video surveillance and Zimbabwean human rights lawyer Beatrice Matetwa 
on why she keeps fighting. Any injustice, my view is that it must be resisted with all the might that you can master as, as a human being. So that's what I've been doing for as long as I can remember. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. When it came to identifying the Boston Marathon bombing suspects, video surveillance footage proved invaluable for the authorities. The first images released by police of the Sarnayev brothers were captured by closed-circuit TV cameras near the two blast sites. That's led some to call for more CCTV cameras in public spaces here in the U.S. I wondered, though, whether that kind of reaction might be the same in other parts of the world. We chose to focus on Germany. There's high reluctance there to installing video surveillance cameras. Germans put a premium on privacy, both online and in the real world. German authorities were the first to object to the way Google collected people's data as part of its Street View mapping program. Thomas Huren is a professor of information, business, and media law at the University of Munster in Germany. Professor, first of all, explain for our listeners why are Germans so wary about technologies like closed-circuit TV cameras? What's, what's the background to that? Well, we had a very bad past uh, when you take the Nazi times in the 30s and 40s of the last century, where we had a lot of surveillance and control by neighbors, by the state. So we have a long tradition of being very, very suspicious if somebody says, I want to collect data. And of course, it's the same if you take all the video surveillance problems. And does the privacy concern about closed-circuit TV also extend to private businesses using it? I mean, uh, crucial video footage in the Boston investigation came from a department store video camera, not, you know, official government cameras. Well, of course, on the one side, it's very good that a lot of people have smartphones and make a lot of video with that. Uh, and that we have private companies who have you know, video surveillance, but still there is a fear that the more we have video surveillance, the more the people are controlled and that is dangerous for everybody. So there's still a lot of uh, restrictions, even legal restrictions in Germany regarding private surveillance and the use of smartphones for video purposes. So after the events in Boston, where is the debate at in Germany right now? Uh, people uh, kind of reconsidering closed-circuit TV? Every time these really catastrophes happen, we have always the same ministers who stand up. Well, we have the Minister of Interior who said, well, this is our chance to discuss opening um, the matter of video surveillance. We need more video cameras, see what, is, what, ha- what happened in Boston. Then we had the Minister of Justice who said, oh, no, 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 no. It's very, very illegal to do it, and there shouldn't be more video cameras in Germany. So it is. they are discussing that matter every time we had a catastrophe in the past uh, around the world, So, and it's the same, unfortunately, with Boston. Of course, uh, increasing CCTV usage means increasing the number of people, analysts who are trained to use it and, and look at the pictures. How do German lawmakers... Uh, who are now talking about this, factor that into the discussion. We have very harsh re- um, regulations um, in our acts regarding private and public video surveillance. For instance, the police can only store video data for a very short time, I think, of one week. So, of course, when we had, um, for instance, one bomb uh, uh, um, problem in the uh, railway station of Bonn, 
where somebody deposited um, a bomb. That was in then January, the, correct? Yeah, it was in January. Then the people said, well, it's incredible that somebody can store a bomb and we don't have the video data because it had to be um, deleted. So um, you cannot do anything. With, uh, you're standing in the railway station of Bonn and you don't have any chance to reconstruct who has de deposited the bomb there. So, Professor, right now, how would you assess the German comfort level with giving up some privacy for more security? I would like a little bit to diminish all these traditional speeches, pro and con. The Boston case should teach us to consider the value of video surveillance and to forget all our past situation like Nazi times and really to see we have terrorists running around. And sometimes it's better to have the data and to reduce a little bit the level of privacy. Thomas Hören, law professor at the University of Munster in Germany. Thanks for your thoughts on this. Thank you. Bankers, they're not the most well-respected citizens these days here in the U.S. or elsewhere. Deservedly or not, they tend to be seen as fat cats who enrich themselves at the expense of their fellow citizens and society in general. So perhaps bankers looking to rehabilitate their image could take a lesson from Suyoshi Yoshiwara. He's a Japanese banker who's recently made a name for himself as a crusader against nuclear power. But he's also a crusader for compassion and decency, as Catherine Winter of the public radio series Burn reports. At the Jonan Shinkin Credit Union in Tokyo, tellers work under energy-saving LED lights. In the elevator, there's a poster urging workers to come to the office dressed warmly in winter so the heat can be set low. An upstairs conference room has three fluorescent ceiling lights, and one is turned off. This is where my interpreter and I meet Suyoshi Yoshiwara. Yoshiwara is the chairman of the bank, and he's trying to make a point. After the accident at Fukushima, people said there's an electrical shortage, so we have to have nuclear plants. But that's propaganda. My company shared the responsibility for electrical demand, so I felt energy conservation would be a strong means of stopping the nuclear plants. So the bank cut its electricity use by 30 percent, the same percentage as Japan used to get from nuclear power before the Fukushima meltdown. Yoshiwara wants his customers to conserve, too. Customers who reduce their electricity use can get a better interest rate on their deposits. They can get interest-free loans if they're investing in power-saving devices. For example, solar panels, storage batteries, generators, those kinds of devices. The interest rate is zero. Assistant Director Takagi Yoshikazu takes us out on the roof to show us the bank's own new solar collector. It's raining, not a great day for solar collection. But Yoshikazu says even in winter, it powers all the lighting on the first floor. The bank tries to buy the rest of its electricity from companies that don't use nuclear power. After the Fukushima meltdown, it cut off its contract with the company that owns the broken nuclear plant. Yoshiwara also joined a lawsuit trying to force another company to decommission a nuclear plant. He's gotten a lot of press for these moves, both good and bad. But he says his activism hasn't hurt the bank's bottom line. Actually, it's had a very positive impact on our business. Customers who aren't just interested in personal gains or losses, but actually felt a social responsibility, more and more of them transferred their business to Jonan Shinkin. Jonan Shinkin is one of the biggest credit unions in the country, with more than a million customers and three and a half trillion yen in deposits. But Yoshiwara says it's a grave mistake for companies to think only of profit. 
ですから今私たちが行動すべきは自分のためじゃなくて。We need to find a way to contribute to society, even if it means putting the entire company on the line.You know, Steve Jobs, he had that kind of romanticism, putting it all on the line in pursuit of ideals.That resonated with me.When Yoshiwara became chairman of the bank, he set a rule that the chairman's salary can't be higher than that of a branch manager.He says money doesn't make people happy, it just makes them lonely. And he says businesses should contribute to public good. He likes to quote economist Adam Smith, warning that companies shouldn't be allowed to run free in pursuit of profit. When I ask how a guy who runs a bank can say such a thing, he fishes out his iPhone and hunts up another quote, this time from Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler, Chandler invented the detective Philip Marlowe, the tough guy Humphrey Bogart played in The Big Sleep. You go too far, Marlowe. Those are harsh words to throw at a man, especially when he's walking out of your bedroom. In the passage Yoshiwara likes, a woman asks Marlowe how a hard man like him can be so gentle. He says this If I wasn't hard, I wouldn't be alive. If I couldn't ever be gentle, I wouldn't deserve to be alive. Marlowe says, If I wasn't hard, I wouldn't be alive. If I couldn't ever be gentle, I wouldn't deserve to be alive. Yoshiwara says that's how a business should be. Tough enough to survive, but compassionate. He thinks a bank like his has moral responsibilities. So he's trying to encourage people to save their money. And at the same time, he's trying to fight nuclear energy. So anyone who walks into the credit union and shows that they've lowered their power bill can walk out with a free piggy bank. For the world, I'm Catherine Winter. Patrick Cox, our language editor and host of the podcast The World in Words, is here with me in the studio. Patrick Cox is also a man with an accent I am still trying to pin down after all these years. <laughs> That's what my seven year old daughter says, too. I took her back to the UK last week. And it was funny to watch it dawn on her that there was a whole nation of people who spoke the same way that I do, <laughs> that I'm not some sort of weird, you know, linguistic outlier.、Um, and at one point, we were on a train at the start of our trip, and, and she just said to the tea lady pushing the trolley down the train, she goes,、uh, You sound British. <laughs> of course, the whole car erupted. <laughs> So, when you go back to the UK, as you did with your daughter, I mean, do you then try to sound more British? Yeah, I, I do a little bit of that accent code switching. I say tomato. I call the stuff that comes out of the faucet, or, or should I say tap? I call it water. <laughs> when I do that, I think, am I trying to fool people here a little bit that I'm, or maybe fool myself, that I'm just、uh, still 100% British after the many years that I've spent living in the, in the US? And, and it really got me thinking about you know, accents and deception. Well, Patrick, that's a perfect point to hear the story you put together all about this. There's nothing that the British enjoy more than to hear an American do a bad British accent. And so Brits were duly and happily outraged one morning not so long ago. The British play War Horse was ending its run on Broadway. An American member of the cast, unnamed, told a BBC reporter how he'd mastered a particular English accent from rural Devon. There are these different、uh, sentences that our coach will give us. Like,、uh, what was one of them? We learned to ride ponies at home long ago. Okay, so the actor wasn't performing at the time. He was just chatting. So it seems a tad unfair to judge his accent. But judge it, Brits did when they heard that on the radio. The accent sounded a bit Irish, Welsh, and not English at all. It wasn't Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, but it wasn't great. Faking an accent and getting it right 
is difficult. The voice is so central to our very being as a person that we resist any kind of change. This is Barbara Berkeley, a voice coach. Not just any voice coach. She's bestowed English accents on the likes of Gwyneth Paltrow and Johnny Depp. She also coached Renee Zellweger, whose character Bridget Jones is often cited as the best ever English accent delivered by an American. Berkeley says that degree of mastery needs time. And Renee and I had、um, we had, did five weeks. Five weeks intensive coaching, verbal exercises in the morning, then field work in the afternoon, going around London trying out different pronunciations of all those pure vowels and diphthongs. It paid off spectacularly. Thank you, Daniel. That is very good to know. But if staying here means working within ten yards of you, frankly, I'd rather have a job wiping Saddam Hussein's ass. As pitch perfect as that sounds to British ears, you don't appreciate the accent just by listening. You have to watch too. It's not just what comes out of your mouth; it's all the shadow moves of physicality, which is different for each accent. An accent, in other words, is something you see as well as hear. Good actors know that. People like Radovan Karadzic know that. Yes, him, the accused Bosnian Serb war criminal who escaped capture for years by posing as another person. Writer Jack Hitt went to Serbia to find out. How he did it? He changed every auditory physical cue that anyone would ever use to identify Radovan Karadzic. That meant changing how he walked, how he dressed, and how he talked. You know, he's he, he spoke in this、uh, sort of urban Belgrade accent, even though he's not from there. It was sort of like、uh, imagine if someone was from Alabama, and when they found him, he was speaking in Brooklynese. And what's really impressive was that he was doing it in Belgrade among native speakers of that accent. Here's almost the opposite situation: you're not among native speakers of your accent, and you're not intending to deceive anyone. But they are nonetheless deceived. That happened to Gary Young when he was researching a book about being an outsider in the United States.、Uh, I had this funny experience in Mississippi, where everything in this school was segregated, including there was a black principal and a white principal. Young wanted to interview both principals, but only the white guy agreed to speak with him. He said he'd be delighted to have an Englishman visit. But when they met, he was shocked to find out that this Englishman was black. You know, his his jaw dropped, but not in disappointment. He was just shocked, and he didn't really kind of know how to deal with it. Later that day, Young ran into the black school principal. He said, "Didn't you call me the other day?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Yeah." I sorry, I thought you were white. There was no deception in these encounters, no fake personas. But in a telephone conversation, you can't see the accent; it can paint an illusory picture. And so back to Broadway, where it's all about illusion. The British musical Matilda opened this month to rave reviews. Nearly all the cast is American, which means that the four actresses who rotate in the role of Matilda have to take lessons in sounding English. One of them is nine-year-old Sophia Janusa. We had a dialect coach, and it took a few, maybe like two months or something like that. Yeah, yeah about that. And then she slips into the accent. She doesn't smile a lot, and she doesn't show a lot of her feelings. So. She's pretty much a person who keeps a lot of her stuff inside of her. That accent's pretty good. For the world, I'm Patrick Cox.
We have more language stories and more this week from writer Gary Young in our language podcast, The World in Words. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Support for the Burn series from Sound Vision Productions comes from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. What's a lawyer to do when she's committed to justice, but the system around her is not? That's the puzzle faced by Zimbabwean lawyer Beatrice Metetwa. You can see that puzzle in all its complexity, sometimes pretty horrific complexity, in a new documentary about her by filmmaker Laurie Conway. It's called Beatrice Metetwa and the Rule of Law. Matetwa's clients have often done nothing more than protest the lack of affordable food or the authoritarian government to Zimbabwe's president, Robert Mugabe. For that, they're beaten, tortured, and thrown in jail. Matetwa uses her formidable legal skills to defend her clients, skills she's acquired despite growing up in an impoverished village. I knew that I didn't want to end up in those dusty, ramshackle buildings all my life. And also, I came from a big polygamous family where I had to fight my father for everything that me and my siblings got. So, I mean, it was a fight from the beginning, so to speak. And it appears that I never stopped. I mean, any injustice, my view is that it must be resisted with all the might that you can master as as a human being. So that's what I've been doing for as long as I can remember, in different ways, obviously. So it was those early fights with your own father that instilled in you that sense of justice and injustice? Yes, I saw my mother, my stepmothers, because he had all these other wives. I saw them really being downtrodden and us children having to really live a life that was worse than it would have been if he had not decided on his type of a lifestyle. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to let this man get away with this. If he brings us into this world, at the very least, he's got to send us to school. And so I would galvanize uh, him to make sure that we at least went to school. It might not have been great schools, but uh, at the end of the day, we were educated, Mm. which is really, which was great for me. It seems your work today might not have been necessary back in 1980 when Robert Mugabe, who was then a freedom fighter and I've got to say seen as a good father figure, triumphed as the country's leader. There's a bit in the film where you feature, Laurie, the rise of the rebel group that brought Mugabe to power after Zimbabwe threw off white rule in 1980. Let's hear that part of the film. This is the voice of Zimbabwe broadcasting on Radio Mozambique in Maputo. The patriotic front is now broadcasting your program through Radio Mozambique. People of Zimbabwe, victory is certain. Beatrice Matetwa, you were young when Robert Mugabe came to power. What were your feelings at the time? We were absolutely ecstatic. He was an articulate president who was a basically saying, let there be reconciliation, no recriminations. And uh, so we all were looking forward to a Zimbabwe that wasn't going to take the usual African path. So what happened to change Robert Mugabe so radically? Well, I actually worked for the government uh, from, from 1983 onwards until about 89. And uh, cracks started developing. Slowly, slowly, uh, the repression grew. 
that that's how it works, I guess. And, you know, when you control virtually every aspect of the country, you can only be powerful. And it's it's a very difficult fight for those who go into politics and, and hope to fight because they are not fighting a political party. They are fighting the entire state machinery. Mm. Well, some are fighting and not going into politics. I mean, one of the most uplifting parts of the film is when you're speaking with the women activists. These are women of all social classes who've often taken to the streets. And I'd really like our listeners uh, to hear from two of them. Jenny Williams, the executive director of a group called Woza, Women of Zimbabwe Arise, and her colleague Magadona Malangu. Here's that clip. When we go into the streets to demonstrate, we are human beings enjoying freedom. They will never take away the joy, the beauty, and the celebration that for those moments we are in the street holding the placard. That moment is the only time we get to say what we feel inside. Beatrice Matetua, what happens when these women's battles move from the street into the courtroom? Well, they go out to the streets complaining about basic things that are taken for granted everywhere else. You know, they want water, they want electricity, they want hospitals that have medicines, and they always get arrested. And, of course, we have to go into court and defend them. And uh, sometimes it can be hilarious because they use the courtroom more to articulate what they'll be protesting about than anything else. And more often than not, the whole trial backfires because they will use that courtroom to really say everything they want to say and they are now protected by the fact that they are saying it and defending themselves in court. And it becomes quite uh, interesting because that's when you see where their advocacy and the law sort of merge and you, you use the law as a tool to also articulate what they feel without the fear that you'll be arrested. There are other very compelling interviews in this film, like the one with the farmer and opposition politician Roy Bennett and his wife. Their farm was taken over by President Mugabe's allies. Here's Roy Bennett talking about what happened after his incarceration and the debt he owes you, Ms. Matetwa. If it wasn't for Beatrice, I mean, I'm sure they would have killed me in, in that prison. There's no two ways about it. Definitely she had a huge impact on me coming out of their life. Ms. Matetwa, I'm curious to know how the racial divide operates in Zimbabwe these days. Did you face a lot of criticism for defending Bennett, a white farmer? Well, I mean, in the last uh, two or three weeks, all that the state media has been reporting is that I only represent white people. The fact that virtually every ZANU-PF woman who's been divorced has come to me has completely escaped the persons who are now sort of rewriting the kind of work I do. And the fact that, of course, if I do work for an ordinary person in the street, it's not newsworthy. So it's not going to get into the newspapers and therefore nobody really will know about it. I don't really care very much about the racial profiling because it does not really make me who I am. I know who I am. I know what work I do. I know that I do work for everybody who deserves to be helped legally. That was Zimbabwean human rights lawyer Beatrice Matetwa. Check out the trailer for filmmaker Laurie Conway's new documentary about Matetwa. You can see that at theworld.org. 
By the way, that trailer and the entire documentary are accompanied by the music of another Zimbabwean advocate for justice, a musical advocate, that'd be singer Thomas Mapfumo. So we're going to leave you with a song by Mapfumo that features significantly in the film. It's called Disaster. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Hope you can join us again tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.